this was about as bizarre and as easy as it gets. So the number for me was a number that would allow me to never have to work. I feel like we got top, top, top. I went from a sale of you know five hundred thousand dollars to in debt. One hundred ninety-two million dollars. This is Built to Sell Radio with your host John Warlow. This episode of Built to Sell Radio is brought to you by the Value Builder System. So you're an entrepreneur and you've got somewhere between a million and 10 million in annual revenue. And you're trying to figure out what's next. Maybe you wanna scale up, maybe you wanna sell, maybe you wanna bring in a manager and delegate some of the day-to-day stuff, bring in the next generation of leaders, maybe you wanna pass it down to your family. All of those options, the one prerequisite is that it's built to sell, that it's actually something that you could pass on to another generation without you. And that's really what we try to evaluate using the Value Builder score. It takes about 15 minutes to complete the questionnaire, and then you're going to get a readout of how your business would be viewed by an acquirer across eight unique dimensions that acquirers care about. Again, it takes only about 15 minutes. You can do it free at valuebuilder.com. You ever thought about franchising your company? The pros and cons to selling a franchise business. Well, you're about to hear from one of the kind of gurus in this space. His name is Anthony Amos, and he started a business called Hydro Dog. Started as an original operator and then ultimately built it up to more than 100 franchises across Australia, $10 million in revenue when he sold the company. Uh, He goes into great detail about how he built the company, how he thinks about franchisees, master franchisees, and ultimately the idiosyncrasies and ins and outs of selling a franchise system. I want you to pay special attention to what happened to Anthony after he sold his business because for a lot of us, thinking through our life after the business is just as important as the thinking that we do while we're running the company. Uh, here to give you the punchline of that story and to tell you all about selling a franchise system is Anthony Amos. Anthony Amos, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. G'day mate, how are ya? I'm great, although I understand you're like, you, we, we've got you like in the seven hour kind of mini window between flights and you're at LAX. Give me the backstory. Why on earth are you at LAX? And, and give us a story. Mate, uh, we flew in um, this morning, very hours of the morning from Orlando. So you're high and, on caffeine right now. Is that what you're talking uh, You know, I had a pre-workout. So yeah, I guess you could say that I'm not a real big coffee drinker. I take my pre-workout in the morning. It's, um, it's, it's actually pretty good. So yes, you could say I'm definitely on something. Got it. So, mate, yeah, so we're in LA. We're about to go back to Australia for uh, two and a half weeks, and we're renewing our visas and coming back, and we're about to um, get stuck into our last 12 months of our Bathe to Save tour, and we're doing a huge launch in LA with Larry King and his celebrity mates that have got rescue dogs, and we're going to be doing a, uh, a speed dating event um, that's going to take place on the 30th of April here. So that's what we're coming back to get into. Got it. Got it. Okay. So, so you're a dog guy. I got to get into the story here. So take me back. Tell me a little bit about the start of Hydro Dog. What, what, what's this business all about? All righty. So uh, I started my career playing professional um, football. You know, you guys call it rugby, but my code is rugby league. I think you Canadians might know it a little bit better. And uh, straight out of high school, um, two professional years of um, professional rugby. And then I started a business with my my brother and what it was it was a a garden trailer six by four garden trailer in the backyard we went and bought a twelve hundred dollar um hydro bath that we stuck in the back of that garden trailer 
put stuck an ad in the paper, rented a mobile phone, and um, started washing dogs for ten dollars and created a business out of it. So for ten bucks, you would come to my home and wash my dog. You make, and let me tell you exactly how this business started. So I take the mobile phone home. We rented it, right? We've stuck the ad in the paper, $10 dog washes. Now, the reason I did this is I was getting frustrated with football because entrepreneurs, if you struggle being told what to do, now there's a difference between that and being coachable. Like entre- entrepreneurs are very coachable, but they do struggle being told what to do with a little bit of authority, you know, if you're not passionately a part of that. So just in the off season, I just threw this idea around with my brother. And um, so we get the mobile phone, put the ad in the paper, $10 dog washes. And I remember it was really early on a Saturday morning because the ad went in on the Friday and the phone rang and I thought it was the fire alarm. So, cause I hadn't heard it ring, but the day before we were ringing all our relatives and telling everybody how exciting it was that we had this mobile phone. Cause in that time frame, it was like 94. Remember only the yuppies had the phones back then. So it was just a wonderful experience to bring all our family and friends that we had a mobile phone. So, but we didn't hear it ring back. So when it rang that Saturday morning, I thought it was the fire alarm and the girl I was with at the time, she's oh, you idiot, it's the phone, it's the phone. So I picked the phone up, it's like, um, Hydrodog Anthony speaking. And this little old lady says, yes, I just saw your ad in the paper, just wondering if you could come around and wash my dog. And I have to tell you, that was one of the most exciting moments because even though it was just that one call, it felt like we'd already succeeded. You know, like we took this chance and we put it out in the paper and we've got the equipment to go and wash this dog. <laughs> so by the time we, we went from my place to my brother's place, which is about 30 minutes away, I ended up getting another eight calls. I've got now nine dogs booked in across the area that we live to go and wash these people's dogs. So I pull up at my brother's place. I said, mate, get in, get the dog shampoo. We've got nine dogs booked in. It, it, we were like two little kids in a lolly shop. It was so exciting. So anyway, he gets the shampoo, he throws in the bath, and we get to our first job. We get the, get the custom, we fill the bath up full of water, and then I go to get the shampoo, and the shampoo, my brother put dishwashing liquid in the bath instead of the actual dog shampoo. So we, <laughs> so we washed our first nine dogs that turned into a multi-million dollar organization, first nine dogs in dishwashing liquid, awesome. and that was the start of our business. So at what point, I love it, at what point did you realize that washing dogs personally was not that much fun, that you'd actually have to hire some people or figure out a model where you weren't doing the washing of the dogs? Well, you know, I've never been asked this question before, and to be very brutal about it, it was the growing of the business. My brother and I had this goal, you're going to laugh at this, we had this goal to, when we had 100 operators, we were going to fly to Geneva and buy a Rolex. That's what our goal was. Now, when you asked me that question, I never lost the excitement of washing those dogs and wanting to be in that business. Now, we did that for six years. I literally did the labor intensive work of washing dogs for six years. I was still able to play my football, but it wasn't professional, but it was local football. So it was sort of, it was a win-win, could do my business and also play football. But what it did was, is when a franchisee came in and purchased from us, our sell was, we're doing exactly what you're going to be doing. So when you start your business, you can call us, we're going to be washing a dog just like you. So that motivation and that growth phase was quite strong because we were really backing the business model of them emulating what we were doing on the ground. So we probably went an extra few years longer than we had to, but we had rapid growth because our franchisees could look at us and go, wow, they're on the tools. 
So how did so, you how did you decide to franchise the business as opposed to making it kind of corporate run or whatever? Because in this industry, mate, if you don't have skin in the game, when it rains, they don't get out of bed. When they get drunk on Friday night, they don't turn up with a hangover on Saturday. And when the women get pregnant, they just walk away from the round because the baby's more important than washing dogs. So they don't have anything bound to a business model that's done on a regular basis that creates a huge um, customer base over a month period. You know, they get done weekly, fortnightly, and monthly. And if you don't keep that regular work up, you lose your clients, they'll go to somewhere else. So what happened was we didn't really understand. We're fostering a lot of our work. We grew so fast. My brother and I had a round each. We're doing like, you know, two, two and a half grand a week just washing dogs and selling dog food. And we're pouring every single dollar back into that business. And now these other five operators, we were killing it for the first three or four months. But then those elements started to sneak in. And before you knew it, the dogs dropped off. The reputation was getting bad. And I just happened to be walking through an expo when this franchising expo was in our local town. This guy sat me down. He said, how would you like to grow your business and not actually, this is the first time I heard it. How would you like to be working um, on your business and not in your business? I thought, you know how how old that saying is now. Yeah, the Michael Gerber expression, yeah. Yes. First time I heard it, I thought, you know what? This sounds pretty good to me. So that's when we turned into a franchise and um, we were one of the fastest growing franchises in the country. We rapidly grew up to 100 franchises in a very short period of time. And um, when we got to 100 franchises, we flew to Geneva and we bought our Rolex. Did, did, did you? How did, how did that feel for you? I mean, was it everything you hoped it would be? Yes, and more and more. But let me tell you what it did. Once I got to that, see, going over and being a part of that journey of flying to, into Geneva and being in Germany and Switzerland and getting the Rolex and being treated, even though we paid overs, we got the jacket on and we got the cup of coffee and we were treated like royalty, mate. It was such a wonderful experience. But you know what? When I got home, because I, I was the personality of the business dealing with the franchisees, I woke up the next day after we got back and I said to my brother, I said, you know what? I want to sell now. He said, what? what are you talking about? So I want to sell. We've achieved our goal. He said, are you kidding me? You did all of this all these years for a Rolex? I went, yeah, I did. That was my motivation because it wasn't really – the money is – mate, listen, money is amazing with everything you do because – it keeps it all moving forward and you can do whatever you want when you've got a ton of money. But you've got to have something that is really significant that very, very few people have done. And getting to 100 franchisees, very few people in this lifetime, A, is a franchisor, and B, has grown a business to 100 franchises. So that was motivation, but the Rolex was the one for me. That was that was everything for me to achieve. So now that was done, and I said that to my brother, he said, are you crazy? Look how much money we're making. I said, I know, but I just, I don't want to deal with the franchisees anymore. So the guy that we originally spoke to that set up the franchise, we got in touch with him. He said, well, why don't you turn it into a master franchise where you sell the states off and the territories, which are seven in Australia, then they look after all the franchisees. And I went, does this exist? Does this exist? I was like, my God, I got a new lease of life. Now that second wind that sports people get, I've got this second wind. I thought, what? Seven people can run the whole top end and we don't have to deal with franchisees. Now, I've not got nothing against with franchisees. I'm just saying I got to a certain level where I wanted to grow more and be, you know, higher with, you know, different personalities that were, that were entrepreneurs that were coming into the business on a more, you know, intellectual level. And I don't mean to put that down with the, the franchisees. I'm just saying from a business sense of wanting to do and invest millions of dollars for their particular state. So within 18 months, we sold out the, um, the territories and the states. Now we've got seven unbelievable operators that are looking after all our franchisees. I was in heaven, mate. I've got to tell you, it was just, it was so 
like a, um, a well-oiled machine and we had these meetings and everyone had different ideas and we grew rapidly. However, two years later, I said to my brother again, I want to sell. And he was like, well, if you want to, I'm, I want to. So what we did is we um, <laughs> got all our money together. And as you do when you do very, very well when you sell a business, you get into property development that you've never, ever done before. Hold that thought, Anthony. Go back to the uh, to the actual sale first. So you, you you got the master franchises involved. Life is moving along really, really well. Where you lost me a little bit is how do you go from life ticking along really well, really well to wanting to sell again? What triggered that second sort of sentiment? I think the real entrepreneur has a problem of hitting the ceilings. Hitting the first ceiling for me was the 100 franchisees. It's the same old, same old, same old, same old every day. Then hitting the ceiling again with the masters, we've sold all the territories now, so I can't go any higher anymore. I'm, I'm now tapped out after two years, I was tapped out of all the masters coming in and just growing the business, and it was the same old, same old again, if that makes any sense. I wanted more, I wanted, I wanted to grow more and do more and bigger things because we were doing very well. When all those masters bought, man, we, it put us in a very, very comfortable position in life of not even having to want to do that anymore. But we still did because it was a great experience to do something new in our company. And then what's the final thing that we could have done? Sold it. No so one then, in the, Sorry, keep going. Yep, keep going. I was going to say no one in the history of Australia has started a franchise from nothing, grew it to over a couple of hundred, and then actually sold it. No one has ever done that before in the history of Australia. No, no one in their right mind would sell a franchise in their first place. But for us, we really wanted to get into property development, and that's that's what we did. And we sold 2006, you know, two years two years before the uh, the economy blew upside down. So we did uh, we did very well. We're doing ten million dollars in revenue. And um, as I share with people why I love franchising so much, even in America today. You can get anything from seven times EBITDA up to 14 times, depending on the franchise and how much blue sky can be purchased with proven states and territories that, you know, can show exponential growth. Got it. And so how, what was your process? So you got the business up to $10 million in top line revenue. I mean, did you hire an M&A banker? Did you go to friends and family? How did you actually market the business for sale? Um, well, because of our reputation, I mean, once I, was, I don't know if you've seen the product, but it's a big blue dog. You know, we ended up getting this big describe blue it. dog. Yeah, describe it for people. Uh, all right. So what we started out was, was a trailer, as you know, that garden trailer. We then put sides on it. It was blue. Then we put a roof on it. It's still blue, but inside that big hydro bath washing dogs, but it was a trailer. We then moved it to a fiberglass trailer, which was different in the marketplace. And then we went to a big blue dog. Now, the big blue dog for people out there, you can go to hydrodog.com or bathe to save.com or hashtag anywhere hydrodog you can see this big blue dog it's fiberglass it sits on this trailer and inside that you wash and groom dogs and it goes to your home and it's a mobile grooming service to actually wash and groom your groom your dog got it so you're out there you've got lots of obviously presence in the marketplace how do you find a buyer for the business um how do we find? I don't even know if we actually advertised that that heavily. I think there were people that were asking on higher levels because we were obviously heavily involved in local um, businesses and whatever. And we just started to put the word out. Before you know it, people saw the reputation and they love what we do. We're all over the news all the time. You know, we're on the newspapers and the news and making these goals because it was so unique. No one was doing anything like we were doing. So you're, so putting, people, the, you're putting the word out, but how, how do you make sure like people aren't – 
people that you don't want to know or, or were you, were you comfortable with everybody yeah. kind of knowing you were for sale? Yeah, because I was out, I was done. I just said, okay, the last chance of me coming in is to sell all these master therapies. So, um, mate, we, we sold the whole country out in 18 months, a year and a half. We sold everything as far as all the territories go. So it just started in business conversations. Then one master led to another. And, you know, I just don't even know if we actually, we might've advertised in, um, the franchise magazine. Maybe that was when we got our first one on and then they would talk to Paul about the business and then it just sort of spread and people in the industry knew people and, you know, wanted to get in on the act. But in the end, we had like, you know, five or six different people that couldn't end up buying because we, we literally ran out of states and territories because there's only seven of them in Australia. So the people that you thought were going to buy the entire business were, it sounds like, were the same people you thought would buy a master franchise. Oh, very much so. Got it. And yeah. so w- did that actually happen? Did, did the buyer that you actually sold to, was, was he or she a, uh, a prospect for the master franchise or one of the master franchises? Um, no. No, because it was sort of, it, it came to us. Like after the two years when I just sort of said to, to Christian, my brother, I said, look, we're out. I, I'm, I'm done now. And he said, not again. I said, yeah, I just, let's get into property. We've been wanting to do this forever. And um, it just sort of came to us. We didn't even market the business for sales. Somebody came to us about, you know how when serendipity just hits the right time, we were ready to sell and there was a buyer ready to buy and we didn't even market the business. And so walk us through that negotiation. So did they, like, how did it, how did they approach you about wanting to buy and, and what was it? Did they make an offer? Did you put a price on the business? How did that work? I think what happened was um, they were actually interested in looking at, at a master. I think something along those lines. And when they knew all the territories and that were gone, they looked into the business a bit further and it was a mutual friend of ours that I'd known forever that had helped us with some of our franchise growth in, in Victoria, it was a mate of his, it was a friend of his, that he told him that all the territories had been, and states had been sold, and that's when he inquired a bit more, and then his name was Michael Anthony. He, he came to me and said, um, listen, I've got a guy that's really interested in the business, and you're not going to believe it, we've just decided to sell. It was, it was just like that. Hmm. And so did he, again, did, did Michael come to you with a price? Did he, did he come with you with an offer? Did you guys put a price on the business? How'd that work? Yes. Yeah, we put a price on the business. We pretty much just did it from, you know, what the, the revenue was and, you know, what franchising was, you know, paying out at the time. And, you know, if you go from 17 at times, you know, 14 times even, you can sort of get a bit of an idea of where we're at and what it looked like. And, you know, we're obviously signed an agreement. Our new owner didn't want anyone really knowing in the media because he wanted to get in and grow the business. He didn't want to sort of put a big deal that he paid a big number for for the franchise system itself. So we've sort of still kept that. He's still got the business today. And, you know, you can sort of get a bit of a rough idea of what that looks like. But, yeah, and, and obviously there were great negotiations because we were in the box seat. We didn't have to sell it. That's the secret. Even though we wanted to, we didn't have to. When you can sell something that – you know what it's like, man, in sales. If you don't have to sell anything, you're always going to get the best price. But – you, what you've also got to take into consideration is when you're in franchising, what sort of relationships did you build and are you letting anybody down long term by squeezing a particular deal that's going through that's going to affect them long term? And what I mean by that is we had some franchisees that had paid the same royalties from the start. We had it for 10 years or so and we hadn't increased them because they became raving fans. So we might have given them free product or kept their royalties at that same price and never increased it to 3% every year. And, you know, we had to take all those considerations into place when doing those deals because that's revenue off his bottom line at the end of the day. 
But we wanted to keep those guys and make sure that they were happy and not a new owner comes in and goes, all right, all the prices go up and everybody gets screwed. There was a lot of that because I'm very much the um, the business type that wants to make sure, even if you're going to be doing really well on the sale, think of all those franchisees that help you get there for that sale. And um, I'm very conscious of you know making sure everybody's left whole and not, not too upset. So how did how did you navigate that? I mean, did you call a franchise meeting to get their input? Did they have approval on the sale? Like, how did you sort of bring them into the fold? Um, I think it was just a matter of what we knew in the industry. I mean, you got to remember we're now, we were now experts. We knew the franchise industry back to front. We didn't really go outside of our own circles and um, just put some what we, what we thought was reasonable. We negotiated backwards and forwards for probably about six months, I suppose, because nothing was changing. We, I, the most exciting thing for me was it was on the table. You know, I, it didn't matter even if it had fallen over, the experience of actually pushing it through and knowing that we were in the middle of that selling process, that we were going to sell it anyway. It was too much of a, a profitable and exciting business for it not to sell. But again, we didn't have to, we wanted to. And that's why we are, were able to do it in our own time and get the best price for it. So it took six months to negotiate. Yeah, it would have been about six months. And, and again, how are, I mean, you obviously know the, the, the franchise industry at this point. You know your franchisees. Are, are you tapping them or, or giving them sort of a heads up or approval? Or is this very confidential? You're not, you're not sharing that. Like, give us a sense of, of, the, of what it was like to be a franchisee in the system at this time. Well, I'm, I'm a big believer in, um, I don't have any regrets because I enjoyed doing it at the time. And the saying goes, you know, <laughs> it's only an regret if, I regret if you don't enjoy doing it at the time. Um, but one of the things is that I wish I wasn't as secretive, especially to some of the staff that we had as well. Um, I would have, now I'm that little bit older, I would be very transparent about this and guys, we're putting the business on the market. But the hardest thing is if the word had have got out, outside of when we were negotiating, it could have definitely interfered with the, with the overall sale. So you, it, the balance is very, very difficult of working out what's the right and wrong thing to do um, with coming in because some people that are purchasing the business, they want it on their terms to be able to tell their franchises to build that relationship as we're going out. See, it's not about us on the sale. It's about the buyer on the sale because they're the ones that are going to have the relationships for the long term as we leave. So that was a very challenging balance, to be honest with you, because you get to know these franchisees and some of them have become very, very close and I'm very, <laughs> to say, very different, but I, in many ways I am, but I love building relationships with my franchisees and becoming friends and mates with them. And a lot of franchisors totally disagree with that because when it comes down to making tough decisions, you're not emotionally attached and all that. And I just think that's a load of bullshit. I just think you've got to get in, do everything you can to make them feel welcome. They'll go through their challenges, be there for them, go and have a beer with them, go meet their family, have a barbecue and um, bring them into the family. And when a, a situation does arise, then you've just got to come up with the best solution so everybody has a win-win at the end of the day. So this is interesting because, uh, you know, for our listeners, we've talked a lot about how do you tell employees that you've sold the company or that you're planning to sell your company? When's the right time? Is it something that, you you know, you do before or after and so forth? So I, you've laid out for me in a, in a very eloquent way the pros and cons to both, right? Obviously, the cons are if, if it gets out, it could disrupt the negotiation. The pros of transparency are obviously that's the right thing to do on a lot of emotional or personal levels. So if you had it to do over again, Again, Anthony, would you tell your employees and franchisees before you actually consummated the deal? I would tell my employees straight away, but I would only tell 
the franchisees, once paperwork was signed as far as they've committed to the sale with their due diligence. I think once the agreement was signed, the due diligence was murderous to me. He was so finical with so much stuff. It was just, it, it really, oh, it sent me mental in the end because it was so frivolous, a lot of things, but that's, that was his personality. He wanted to do it, you know, so tight. Um, what I would change is definitely telling my employees straight away because we had wonderful relationships with them. And from the franchisee perspective, once the agreement has been signed that they've got a 90 day due diligence, or but our due diligence changed three times, it was increased and increased. But I think from that first day that they've committed and they've paid a deposit, I would then tell your raving fan franchisees, all franchisees don't need to know, you don't need to put a, a message out and you know cause hysteria for everybody to get together to cause a drama. I think you've got to tell your raving fans. And this is what I've learned in franchising. I just try and get out of this noise here. Um, there's four types of franchisees that you really start to understand after three months. The first one's a raving fan. They love the business. They love you. They treat it just like it was your business. They are phenomenal. They rave it. They tell everybody about it. And they'll get franchise sales across the line every day for you. The second one is a business owner. Now, you've got to remember, this is after 30 days, and it's almost to the, to the day. People being in there for three months, um, sorry, three months. People have been in the business for three months. You know these are so true. Second one's a business owner, loves it, works hard, gets in there, doesn't complain, but they don't go over the top about it. They're just a very, very solid um, franchisee to have to grow the business. The third one is an employee mentality. They believe that you're the boss. They throw all the blame back at you. You know, anything that goes wrong, it's your fault. So. They're challenging, but they can be dealt with. They can be pushed up to a, um, a business owner with a little bit more training and a little bit more understanding. You can actually work with them and get them up to a business owner. So they're salvageable. But the fourth one is a government employee mentality. It's sort of like they're going to go to be an employee the rest of their life. You can't push them up to an employee at all. They're governmentally based. They've just got that rhetoric of nine to five. They want to make a certain amount of money and nothing really more excites them. And there's nothing wrong with that. The reason I use that is it's very centered of no real growth from having a government employee job, unless you sort of go up into the ranks, but you sort of get where I'm coming from. There's a, a very specific four types of franchisees. So for me, I would have told the raving fans and the business owners, and I would have told the other ones before the new owner told them, like sort of after the deal has sort of just come through, I think it would place a little bit differently because if you go all out and you tell everybody on a paper that's been signed for due diligence and then it doesn't happen, now you've got uncertainty all the way through your franchise system and nobody knows who's going to be coming in. Are they going to be just like us? You know, are the franchise fees going to go up? You know, all of these questions will happen and they'll feel like that, we're not loyal to them anymore because we're selling the business from underneath them because they get very attached to the business that you're involved in. So it's a very, very tricky um, delivery at the end of the day when you want to work out what the best way is. You mentioned diligence is really tough, and I, th I think you used the term sent me mental. I mean, give us a sense of, uh, and because if, think, put yourself in the shoes of a listener here who aspires to sell their business but have ne has never gone through the process. Um, what, what was diligence like? What were the level of detail that you were being asked for? Uh, just kind of try to paint the picture for us. All right. So I think from the, the due diligence level from his head to our head, ours was simple. Franchisees have signed a franchise agreement. 
you know in the agreement when they sign, how long their franchisees uh, agreement's for, how, how much are they paying per month as royalties, and their agreement of buying products for us. And to us, it was very, very simple. But to him, he wanted to go through the registered businesses that were online with the government. He wanted to go through the registration of the business names. He wanted to go through the agreement. He wanted to see the attachments. He wanted to see invoices that they were purchasing product from us. He wanted to see the invoices for the royalties. There, it was such a massive paper trail of everything that we had said that he could see on the front line wasn't good enough. He wanted to see in detail that every single one of those franchisees, and you got to remember that there was a ton of these franchisees all across the country and under master franchisees. So it wasn't just the franchisees, it was the master franchisees with their franchisees. So to coordinate seven high-end entrepreneurs that have got, you know, 50 franchisees or 60 or 70 or 10 or whatever they were around the country, individually they had to go in in their own time and dig up that because when we told all our masters that we were selling, um, they were they were sort of the last – the last ones to know because we wanted to make sure these guys, that they would have been a force in their own right of, you know, making decisions with us collectively as a team. Um, I would have kept that the same. I would definitely have kept them the same because they're they're smart enough to know that there would have been a change in the air and they could have, they could have really mucked things around a little bit. Um, But it was just that it was the, reassurance of paperwork that they could see on the front line. They wanted to dig deep and get it, not just from what we were saying and what were on our books, but government, state, all of that. They wanted to see invoices of purchasing and oh, there was like one missing here and three missing there. And just until that last piece of paperwork was done, he was not moving forward. It was unbelievable. How much dilution was there between the original offer that you accepted before diligence and the final sale price? See, I, lo- I love this question. Due diligence is all about renegotiating for a better price. That's all it is. That's all it boils down to. And the longer they dig and the harder they get, if we, everything that he was really smart with his um, due diligence of trying to find something that wasn't there, like the hardest piece that we had to go to the end of the earth to find because you can say, well, if you don't have that, the risk is on me. That franchisee, they're worth $12,000 a year. We're going to have to take that one off if we don't actually get that. And you can imagine our frustration when you've got 20 of these and he's going to take $12,000 off a year, you know, just with one of those and then timesing it by the EBITDA that we got. It turned into a very significant number. So we were tearing our hair out. Now, we were having arguments with our master saying, it's got to be there, that one document. It's got to be there. You've got to go through. And then they, some of them had to – Go back through and get um, uh, what's it called when you get an attorney to um, an affidavit? We had to do a ton of affidavits of documents that they both agreed that were there that they couldn't find, and uh, we had to come up with some very creative ideas to make sure that we could get over the line. But I would say through that due diligence period, maybe maybe under twenty percent, maybe. You know, probably around about 16 or 17%, I think, off the overall asking price. But we loaded the front end anyway. But we, we ended up getting more than what we were actually asking for. Again, because we didn't have to sell. That's, that's why we didn't, we didn't have to in the process. Uh, and, you know, <laughs> there was times when I walked in and said to my brother, I'm, I'm out. I don't want to do this anymore. 
there's Anthony, we're so close. I thought you were the one that wanted to I said, someone else will buy it. He said, do you really want to go through this again with someone else? And he had a good point. I thought, if anyone's going to do this again, I'll be dead. I, it just because I'm not that type of brain that needs to have all that that information and, and the, the, the litigious pieces and I'm just not that that's not how my brain works you know so I know I couldn't have gone through it again so he had a good point I thought all right let's just hang in there let's just get it through so in the end he got some pretty good wins but at the end of the day we ended up you know getting more than what we'd asked you know I think we all walked away pretty happy yeah it sounds like it and so just to be clear there was about a 16 percent discount one six percent discount from the original negotiated sale price to the, the end of the diligence where you actually consummated the deal. Yes, and it was a lot of money, though, just to yeah. that. Yeah, it sounds like it. And, and then how, I mean, one of the things that's curious to me, you're, you're badgering the master franchisors for all these you know, documents and so forth. Like, what's in it for the master franchisor to, to play ball? I mean, are they incentivized in the sale of the business in any way? No. And this, mate, I, I've got to tell you, I love your bloody questions you're giving me right now because I'm, I, I don't, have, I get these um, interviews all the time, and I, I've never had ones that are that are this good, um, which is great because it's making me think, um, you know, really carefully about the um, about the answers. No, there wasn't, but you know what got us through, mate, the relationship, the beers with them at the pub, going around and meeting the family at barbecues having retreats together, getting to know them personally. Because in the end, they were favours for us. You know, we told them that we're at our end. We told them that this is what we want to do. But if it was just a master franchisee and owner, it would have been very challenging because they really had to go all out in their own time to find all this, all this stuff for this lunatic that wanted just ridiculous paperwork that, you know, everyone knew was unheard of. But the problem was they, they're going, oh, my God, this guy's going to be our owner. This guy's going to be the franchise. Oh, Anthony's going. How are we going to deal with this guy if he's like this in the beginning with all the paperwork? But all he was doing was trying to reduce the price with his due diligence. That's what his his aim, the, uh, the name of the game was for him. So, yeah, I believe if it was just um, a typical franchisor and master relationship, we would have struggled to get that deal over the line because it would, there's no incentive for them at all to do it because I knew that this guy was very different to us as well. What was it like to see the, the wire transfer come into your bank account? Um, it's probably the sixth most exciting thing that's ever happened to me in my life. And I, and I was explaining this to you before that we'll get into it in a minute, but um, getting married to my beautiful wife, having my three kids, getting the business back over here in America, which we're talking about in a minute, um, that, was, that was number six. That was, that was um, at the time, the most exciting thing is a, uh, Jeez, I think it was 32, 32 years of age. You know, it was a big deal. It was a very, very big deal. It was, um, <laughs> mate, I think I got shit-faced for about a week, to be honest with you. I don't, th- I don't think I came home for a week. My wife would be ringing around town trying to find out where I was. I was just, like, that excited. It was just – it was a very Australian thing to celebrate. Might have got carried away, to be honest with you, but it was still fun. <laughs> <laughs> so beyond beyond a six day bender, was there anything that you that you bought? Did it change your life in a way, in a material way? And and when you think back, um, oh, most definitely did. Yeah, we we bought some bloody nice houses and really nice cars. Um, obviously, I didn't need to buy a Rolex. We already had that. And um, we, yeah, but we, what we did though, mate, is we sort of we packaged it all up and reinvested it in 
into our property property development. So even though we hit it just before the economy collapsed, we um, we put a ton of money into our property deal, which was a um, a development in Mackay. It was a Ramada resort. We were building a hundred million dollar Ramada resort up in North Queensland and Mackay. Beautiful, beautiful place. Had all the land and everything ready to go. But unfortunately, um, we got caught with the the turn of the economy in 2008 9 and our funder was from America who had all our our funding dollars that we'd secured and we couldn't take it out we couldn't roll it over and it, it hit us big time and um, you know once that all collapsed that's when um, my beautiful wife said let's go to America and we brought the concept of hydro dog so it lives again we bring it because so I just sort of sat back and reflected and thought what do I do like what am I what do I do now that the property war's over? And Rachel's like, you're so good at hydrodog. Why don't we take it to America? So we came over to America. But just letting you know, in 2004, this is now 2010. In 2004, my brother and I were invited to come to America with the um, consulate of the franchising with the government of being one of the most successful franchises in the country. And they just paid for our whole way to come over to the US of one of the emerging franchises to possibly come into the US. So in 2004, we saw the market, big businesses from Australia were coming over, but neither of us wanted to come to America back then because we were on fire. Why would you when you're making a ton of money and you love the country that you live in? Plus, we're playing football and we, we had a really, you know, on fire life, if you like, and we just didn't need to come to America. But now, wife's like, well, why don't we go to America? So we come over here, long story short, find my business partners, um, Go into the franchising again. We got our, I flew over here to find our manufacturer for the big blue dog and we get started. So we spent 12 months building out the franchise here in America. So you got to remember, completely separate from Australia. Hydro Dog's back. I've got America going. These guys bought me and my brother out with the, the world rights and I'm now back in the business with these guys. And I went back to a funeral after about a year of setting all this up. And when I come back, my partner's like, listen, mate, we're leaving too much money on the table. We're going to corporatize. I went, no, we can't corporatize, just like I explained before. Now, you, what is it, what is what does corporatize mean for people listening along? So corporatizing is now taking from a franchise model where you'd sell franchises where people would have skin in the game to now being a corporate environment where you've got a CEO, a COO. You employ people to run those grooming um, big blue dogs, and then it's run with administration. Now where do I fit into that? I'm a franchisor. I'm a guy that goes out and builds a franchise and builds relationships with franchisees to be successful. And I said, guys, you've got to have skin in the game. I've explained this to you. This is why we franchised in Australia. And they came back and said, well, look, if you're not going to do it, we're going to have to do a buyout. So I said, okay, we're going to have to. I'm not going to be a part of a corporate. Mate, I'm not corporate material. <laughs> I'm, the, I'm, the I'm, I'm, I'm getting that sense, Anthony. <laughs> yes. I thank you, mate. I, I appreciate it. But, you know, being a franchisor is very – I read a beautiful article the other day. Very, very few people ever have the, the privilege of being a franchisor. So um, I got bought out. I, I started two new companies. I invested in five, doing very, very well. And a year and a half later, they ring me up and they say, you were right. We should have franchised. We're going in liquidation. So I then started a uh, negotiation deal with these guys. And I, I promise you I got it back. Pennies on the dollar, and it was the fifth most exciting day of my life. When you get a company back that you started from nothing, you get to get your own partners in and, you know, put money back into your own business and kick it off again. Oh, mate, 
just even thinking about it now, I get chills. You know, to to have the opportunity in a lifetime to get your business back is a very, very milestone moment. So um, this is where the conversation gets really, really awesome. I was just going to ask before we go there, what was it when you came to America? Why did you have partners? Why didn't you just start the business with your capital and, and build it on your own? I didn't have any capital. I lost it all. In that, in that property deal, when the economy turned upside, we, we secured everything we had and put all our money into those, um, into those deals because it was one of those things where um, it decimated us. It, we, we went all in. We just went, you wouldn't believe all in. Everything that we had just, and, and that's just what happened. It just unfolded. And we, uh, I had to come over here and just start from scratch. You know, I had to find people to invest in me. And I still had to maintain you know, a, a huge um, majority share, otherwise I wouldn't have been able to, to do it. And that's really how it started. So it probably took, you know, what, two, two years, two, two and a half years to sort of get back up to a pretty healthy, healthy way and then started to kick some, some pretty serious goals with the other companies. Um, but yeah, but it was the first time I did it because we've self-funded all the way through with our other stuff for, forever. I mean, as I said to you, when we set on our own, this is still making two, two and a half grand every week, dumping it back into the company. We never, ever borrowed money to, to do it. But the economy changed. You know, people, this is what happened. Everybody was a franchisor right up until that. Uh, sorry, everybody was an entrepreneur up until the economy um, turned upside down. And when it did, the true entrepreneurs reinvented themselves. They learned how to partner. They learned how to raise capital with other people's money. And then the ones that didn't, they went back and they did their um, – corporate roles. You know, they went back to the banks. They went back to working for companies and that really separated the chart. But now it's back. You can feel it's back, right? You know that there's a ton of um, uh, entrepreneurs out there really risking a lot to um, to make this happen because, you know, whether we like it or not, there's going to be another turn in the economy in another few years and we are just got to get in there now and go really, really hard. And that's what I'm doing right now, which is the second part of this. And, you're, and your listeners are going to love what I'm about to tell you right now because I'm, I'm just over the moon about it. So when we got the business back, I took the big blue dog home and part of my due diligence was getting it from a trailer and putting it on the back of a transit van. So they're not trailers here anymore in America. They're now on a, they're a big blue dog and they're on a van. So if you go to hydrodog.com, you can check it out. They look phenomenal. So anyway, I bring the big blue dog home. My kids are watching these humane society ads. They're old enough now to understand just how bad the euthanasia is over here. And uh, you know those tear jerkers that the um, the celebrities do, and they're just really shocking ads. So they they go up to my wife and they say, you know, Mom, listen, what can we do? We've got Big Blue Dog back. Can we sort of save these dogs' lives? So anyway, in the middle of the night, I'm lying there. And my wife wakes me up. Now I've got to be honest with you. I thought I was getting lucky, but she said, No, let's get a 40 foot RV and put that big blue dog on the back and let's go around the country saving dogs' lives. So I sort of lost and I sort of won at the same time because I don't know any woman in the world that would say, let's get an RV and travel around the country. No. So, <laughs> so anyway, we did that. We put it on the back. So we've created what's called the Bathe to Save Tour. So if your listeners go to bathetosave.com, we've put the big blue dog on the back of a 40-foot RV. We've completely wrapped them both in sponsors with big bubbles. It is an absolute beast, 63 feet long. And we're driving around doing 50 states, over 200 cities. We're washing dogs at shelters. 
and events and raising awareness for animal adoption and animal rescue. We're going to raise a million dollars and we're going to save thousands of dogs' lives. Now, how this works with Hydro Dog is Hydro Dog is the number one sponsor because every single dog gets washed in that big blue dog. So when we raise this money and the tour's over, what happens then? Hydro Dog comes into the marketplace. In that town or city that we've created that relationship, they work with the shelters, they work with the events that we created, and now the legacy of the tour lives on because once a month, those franchisees are going to wash the dogs at the shelters, raise money and awareness for animal adoption. Now, let's think about this. If there were 200 of big blue dogs in America like there are in Australia right now, and all of those operators just saved one dog a month, that's 200 dogs a month that are getting saved through the Bathe to Save expedition. So it's a year and a half long, and we're basically creating that awareness so our franchise system will live on and be a part of this legacy forever. Because I'm telling you, if we can put 200 franchises in the size of Australia, which is the same population as Florida, you can't tell me that we're going to have at least a 1,000 of these over here and we can save a 1,000 dogs a month. Are you kidding me? What an impact that would be forever. What a great legacy for your daughter, the one who came up with the idea in the first place. <laughs> yes. Well, listen, they're, they're 13, 12, and 11 now, and they're out there and they're washing the dogs, they're sacrificing being at school and playing sports, and they're really living this, and they're, they're part of the ecosystem. They work really hard to... They're learning to give back. They're learning to understand what it's like to not save all the dogs. I mean, they're learning a lot of uh, amazing lessons. And one of my favourite things that I will take away from this forever, I was up in North Carolina having a drink at the bar and the, uh, the bartender said, where's your favourite state so far? I said, mate, well, my favourite state's Oregon. He said, really? What place? And I went Pacific and he finished my sentence. He said, Pacific City. I went, yes. He was a 50-year-old man. He turned into a 10-year-old. He was excited and passionate telling me about how he lived there with his grandparents and, and the place hasn't changed in all those years. I don't know if you've been to Pacific City, but it's a beautiful place that's, that's set in stone and stayed that way since the 50s. You can have fires on the beach and take your cars on the beach. Just an amazing place. And the penny dropped. My kids are going to every state, every capital cities, towns and cities in between. When they get older and they hear an American accent anywhere in the world, they can walk up to them and say, excuse me, where are you from? And chances are they're going to have some sort of dialogue with that person of a very thick content for them to get passionate about where they either live or where they grew up. I mean, that in itself is something pretty special that I feel that, you know, at least I can contribute one thing to these guys before I pass. What a great, what a great legacy. Anthony, where is the best place to people to find out about you? I mean, I'm assuming they can go to hydrodog.com to learn a little bit more. Well, this is what we're doing right now. We're going um, back to Australia. We're renewing our visas, coming back in, and we're about to do a Larry King interview at Larry King events in LA on the 30th of April. So this event's bringing all the celebrities together with that are in the rescue world. We're going to have a speed dating event, and that's going to be our, what you would call our launch. And we're going back through and doing all 50 states and over 200 cities. So we've already done about 27 states already but we're going to start and do the whole 50 again from that date and we've got some big names that are now following us and being a part of it so if you go to bathesave.com follow where we're, where we're going to be at your town city or event find out about our family and check us out and see what we're doing and then as far as becoming a, an owner operator with hydro dog you can just go to hydrodog.com and you know, fill out the form and get to, I, I do it all. I, I talk to every single person that wants to be involved in this business because 
we're creating a culture. We're not just selling a business. You have to love dogs. You need want to raise money. You want to be part of this legacy and do this thing long term. Then you know you're a part of this big family with us. You're going to meet the kids and the wife and all our business partners and. It's going to be something pretty special. So, mate, I'm just – look, it's not easy. It's a very difficult thing. No one in the history of America has ever done this before, so we can't emulate off anyone. And you know the old story. If you want to be successful, follow someone's footsteps. It's already been there. Put your own spin on it. Give it everything you've got, and you will become successful. We can't do that. We, we can't follow anybody that's ever done this before. So there's been a lot of moving parts. It's been difficult to understand the, um, the marketplace in the shelter world. And the rescue ward, we feel like we've got the best partners now with Wild Pets and Greater Good and all these sponsors that have come on board. And um, we're ready now to launch out and raise this million dollars in the next 12 months, starting the 30th of April. Well, Anthony Amos, I wish you all the best. Thanks for joining us. Thank you very much, mate. Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. Connect with John at Facebook.com slash Built to Sell or on Twitter at John Warlow, W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W.